0: Well, thanks everybody so much for joining us. Um, this is gonna be a really interesting panel. You know, if you think about monetary policy 11 years ago, the Fed had about $800 billion on one side of its balance sheet. Those were the liabilities. And it had $800 billion of treasury securities on the other side of its balance sheet. Those were its assets. And, and that was pretty much it. And monetary policy operated by the Fed kind of buying and selling small amounts of really short-term uh, in, the, in the Fed funds market and they jiggered rates up and down with that. And then about 10 years ago during the financial crisis, this completely changed. And the focus at the time was so much on what the Fed was buying. It was entirely on the assets. It was entirely on the quantitative easing. And the fact that the Fed bought $3 trillion of, of treasury securities and $1.5 trillion of mortgage bonds or whatever it was exactly. And you know, endless panels had been dedicated to what happened in quantitative easing. And not nearly as much focus has been given to the other side of the Fed's balance sheet, what it did with its liabilities. That system completely changed. It changed several times. Uh, It was a very technical system. But the basics of it are that the Fed went to a system where its main way it changed interest rates was a rate that it paid directly to banks. The interest on excess reserves rate became kind of the main tool of monetary policy and it's one of those really significant changes that's gotten really little attention. And so today's panel is gonna be great because it's going to be really focused on the mechanics of what the Fed did and what it means uh, that we've had this new system without much thought. And so I'm really excited for the three panelists we have here. Steven Williamson is the professor and Stephen A. Jaroslavsky chair in central banking at the University of Western Ontario. And he also uh, spent a considerable amount of time as a vice president at the St. Louis Fed. Um, and also taught at the uh, Washington University. Uh, George Selgin, of course, is the director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And when it comes to this topic, George is the person who actually wrote the book. He'll probably sign it for you if you uh, come find him afterwards. Um, and you can buy copies on, online. The, um, George has thought about this topic really more than anyone, and has, I think, kind of um, been kind of the driving force in the idea that we need to have a conversation about the system that the Fed has ended up with. And finally, Peter Ireland is the Murray and Monty Professor of Economics at Boston College. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, and he's a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, which many of you of Cato have uh, spent a lot of time listening to their views and and the questions that they raise about how the Fed conducts its policies. So we have a really great panel, and I think we're going to jump right into it. Um, Steve, if you want to come up and start us off, and we'll figure out what this uh, new world we've gotten ourselves into with IOER is all about.
1: Okay. Ah. All right. So, I don't know if this is going to advance the... <laughs> Oh, sorry, thank you. yeah, it's still not working. Oh here we go. Excellent okay so so uh some of this is a bit in the weeds it, it uh. When I would talk to uh, Jim Bullard at the at the St. Louis Fed about this, sometimes you get impatient with it, so so you have to bear with me a, a little bit. So we'll start with what you know how the how the operating framework worked before the before the financial crisis. So. So in the United States, we're operating basically under what we call a channel system or or corridor system. Uh, There's a a target interest rate, which in our case was the Fed funds rate, uh, bounded on the high side by the discount rate, the rate at which the Fed's Fed's lending to commercial banks, and and on the low side by zero, which is the interest rate on uh, reserves. Uh, The target, so so this is, you know, unusual in the U.S. The target is an unsecured overnight rate, the Fed funds rate. Uh, Lots of, you know, central banks will will target a a repo rate, which is is secured, you know, big difference. Um, uh, But the way the Fed actually intervened was the (laughs) the typical day-to-day intervention was in the repo market. So basically what they're doing or what they were doing before the financial crisis is intervening in the repo market, the secured market, with the idea that the you know secured and unsecured overnight funds are are, uh, are substitutes, and, and with the, the idea that they're going to influence the, the 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 Fed funds rate that way and hit their hit their target. Uh, Perhaps it could have been, would have been easier uh, if they they'd actually taken the approach of targeting a repo rate so they could have announced you know a target for a, a repo rate and and uh and that that would have actually been i think easier to uh, easier to easier to hit <laughs> on, a, on a daily basis uh, so when one of the problems with the you know, with the, using the you know thinking thinking in terms of the fed funds market comes you know comes up in a financial crisis you know when the Fed funds market gets contaminated by uh counterparty risk and then you then the the rate that you're trying to trying to hit is is uh, is well in in the case of the fed 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 funds rate that's not actually just a one interest rate it's a whole whole distribution of rates and that distribution got very dispersed you know during the during the financial crisis uh, okay um, what happened then well so so in uh uh we, we have a, a, a period of, of zero interest rate policy, essentially zero interest rate policy and balance sheet expansion. Uh, uh, there was provision to be you know by Congress to, to pay interest on reserves. that's important. Uh, that uh, uh, the implementation of that got moved up to October 2008. Uh, and then so but between, in December 2008, December 2005, the Fed funds target range. So now we're <laughs> we operating in a system where the the uh, it's not a, <laughs> we're not Fed's not announcing a number; they're announcing a range for the Fed Fed funds target, uh, which which over this this uh, seven-year period was zero to a quarter percent, and the interest they paid on reserves uh there's provision to, to pay different interest rates on excess reserves and required reserves but they they just made those the same and interest was be you know over that period was uh paid at uh paid at a quarter percent on uh, on uh on reserves so we'll call that interest rate I- IOER you yeah, know interest interest on uh excess reserves uh and then Then we have this balance sheet expansion. So between September 2008 and October 2014, when this ended, uh, it's approximately five-fold increase in the nominal size of the Fed's Fed's balance sheet, whether you're looking at assets or liabilities. Uh, uh, An increase in average maturity of the assets in the Fed's portfolio. And then there's this reinvestment policy, so that's important. So so the... uh, uh, that 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 happened in the interim <laughs> that was imposed and then uh and then the idea is that as the even if the fed's not buying assets to increase the size of the balance sheet as the assets mature they're going to re- they're going to replace them uh uh okay so so basically that's what what we call a floor system so different from the core different from the corridor system uh, it's a floor system where in theory what should happen is the Interest rate on reserves should should determine all the overnight rates just by just by financial arbitrage. And again, that's that's in theory because in practice it, it didn't work that way. And the Fed anticipated it, you know it it wouldn't work that way uh, before they before they actually started to uh, increase interest rates. So now normalization. So the normalization was discussed way back in 2011. There's there there. Are you know, the Fed posts, uh, post stuff on its, on its website about what the normalization plans are. Uh, not, you know, non-specific, but they're, but they're talking about it that early. Uh, nothing happens until, until late, uh, late 2015 when, when you, when you get the first, uh, first, uh, interest rate, interest rate hike. And then the, the balance sheet reduction that gets postponed a really long time uh until uh fall of fall of 2017 when it's a fairly timid kind of kind of backing off from the from the balance sheet expansion in the in that the, the reinvestment policy is just is just uh is phased out uh and you know phased out gradually. And now it's roughly, roughly gone, except for for caps on you know how much uh how much assets the Fed's gonna let, let mature? Uh, well, you, you, see, you might think, given that the, what, the, what the Fed did was they re- reduced interest rates essentially to zero and then expanded the balance sheet. If they were gonna normalize and possibly return to what what uh, what we had before the, before the financial crisis, you might think, well, maybe they'd do it in reverse. Well, that's not what they did. <laughs> so what they did was they, instead of reducing the balance sheet say by selling assets first and then increasing interest rates they increased interest rates and then started to reduce the balance sheet again in a kind of kind of timid way why didn't they you know why didn't they do it in reverse well one reason was this uh, so called taper tantrum in 2013 uh, uh bernanke announced that the, there was going to be a phasing out of the of the uh of the Asset purchases, a tapering, and 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 then he got a reaction from financial markets he didn't expect, uh, particularly in the in the in, in bond markets. Uh, uh, so that put the FOMC off from from balance sheet reduction. They, they got very they got timid about it. Uh, and you know so there, that's one element of it. The other is that you know that uh, there's a you know I. I think still is probably probably this is the dominant view on the on the FOMC that quantitative easing works uh, And then other people wanted to maintain accommodation they thought that was that was that was gonna do it so it's kind of f- faith in Faith in the effects of uh, QE I think was driving part of this too uh, well then so so when the when the uh Fed wants to wants to wants to lift off, get off, uh, increase interest rates above above uh, above zero. Question is, could they actually could they actually control a Fed funds rate in the in the range they they want? So the pr- problem here, you know, so the way people talked about this way back uh, before they did this was that uh, well, the view was that there there are these frictions in in overnight markets uh, thought to be due to uh, what we call balance sheet costs we won't go into what what exactly that's about, but that's that's kind of a standard view and imperfect competition uh, some of this had to do with the fact that uh, not all financial institutions have reserve accounts and and the ones that do have reserve accounts, not all of them get interest on reserves, including you know in particular the uh, Government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, federal home loan banks, etc. So again, that's kind of in the weeds, but but there, some idea that, 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 that things aren't going to work according to theory. That when the interest rate on on reserves goes goes up, that maybe the Fed funds rate isn't gonna isn't gonna follow. So they're kind of worried about that. So what 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 do we have then? So we we got what we might call a leaky floor system. So. So in theory, you've got the corridor system where you the you're targeting an interest rate between two, you know, between two rates that bound it, and the floor system where you're where uh you've got you've got all these reserves outstanding, and then the interest rate on reserves should dictate overnight rates, but in the US case it, it doesn't. Okay. So anyway, so so the uh uh the idea is that we're gonna have this uh gonna have this uh on our uh, what we call the on RRP facility, uh, uh, it's kind of reserves by another name, and a, an interest rate on on reserves that's uh, or on uh, on uh, repos that the reverse repos for the Fed. That's lending to the Fed. Like I said, reserves by another name, but but kind of hitting a different part of the market. Okay, so what uh, what happens now? So early in the <laughs> early in the uh, uh, this this new regime. What happens is that so what I'm showing you here is uh, just the first year. This is 2016. There's one interest rate hike that happened in December 2015, and then there's not another one until December 2016. So what is what happens here is that the you got the interest rate on reserves, which is up at up at 0.5 percent, and and uh, and uh, Fed funds kind of trade somewhat below that. And then there's various anomalies going on in the market. And then the, there's this on RRP rate, which is which is down below the Fed funds rate. And then T-bills are kind of trading down, down there, even sometimes below the this on RRP rate. Uh, later on, see, this is now, things change radically in uh, about March of this year. Uh, here's what uh, here's part of what happens let's see so i didn't want want this one so so what happens now is now, now it's like the this uh, uh, overnight r- reverse repurchase agreement facility that the Fed has has now become moribund you know there's no really no take up on it and, no, and these uh, what's going on in the in the repo market is that the uh, now it's like the the uh the repo rates have kind of gone up to the to the top of this fed funds rate band to, to to close to the interest rate on access reserves so everything's sort of tightened up towards the end of this this uh time series here it's like the the fed funds rate is now trading at uh fed funds are now trading essentially at at interest rate on interest rate on reserves so what's happened there i think is that uh that uh, this is partly, let's see. So the the there's a for me it's it looks like what's going on is that you've kind of relieved a, a shortage of collateral in, in repo markets. That's part of what what was what was going on to do with this funny behavior in the in the early period, and uh, and then what we have now is is uh, something the Fed. Blames on the Treasury, but I think is part, partly what what they're doing. It's like the the timing too, is too uh, too close to n- not to matter. That the it's like the phasing out of reinvestment by the by the Fed in combination with more Treasury issue. That's that's kind of uh, that's kind of that's uh, that's kind of relieving this. What's what's kind of a like a shortage of collateral in in um, in uh, overnight markets. Uh, and, and just making things work better, actually. So the, uh, I'll kind of skip <laughs> some other stuff I could have shown you. Uh, so, so there's this idea that the, maybe the, the QE was, a ba- maybe the QE was a bad thing, that it, that it, that it messed up overnight markets uh, without maybe any, any, any benefits. Uh, should, the main, should the Fed maintain its current operating system? Well, there's an argument, you know, it's easy and accurate it's the way this, this floor system works. You just set the interest rate on reserves and it pegs overnight rates. What's wrong with that? Uh, some people think abundant reserves eases friction in daylight, daylight payments. Uh, but I think, I don't know, that's, that's not, much to, not much to go on. So the, the cons, I think, outweigh the pros. <laughs> so it's like uh, you can get all the ease and accuracy you want if the Fed uses a corridor system targets a repo rate. Uh, daylight payments, there are other, other ways to look after that that have nothing to do with, with like overnight, uh, overnight reserves. Large balance sheet uh, may have added inefficiency. By withdrawing good collateral from from uh from overnight markets with no upside benefits uh in terms of what the you know what the fed's ultimate uh, ultimate goals are and then there are these political costs to do with the with the large balance sheet do with uh you know temptation to to do, do kind of buy unusual buy unusual assets uh and i should <laughs> i should uh just about quit here uh there's a question of what you know whether we're we're kind of close to the point where where uh, uh, you know we might get get back to this corridor system where the, you get in low enough quantity of reserves that the fed funds rate's going to trade above the interest rate on excess reserves i don't think we're anywhere close to that some talk and i hear numbers like a trillion dollars in reserves will get you back to the corridor system but i think it's much it's much lower than that so you know, uh, so I think there are important lessons in sort of these recent developments and how overnight markets are behaving. For what what actually quantitative easing did that it you know that it may, it may have done bad stuff and that, that there's no no upside upside to uh, large scale asset purchases and that this I don't I don't think the floor this continuing with this floor system has any has any real advantages. Thank you.
2: Well, as Steve uh, mentioned to you, uh, there have been several components. There were several components uh, to unconventional monetary policy, two of which most people are quite familiar with. One of them, of course, consisted of the Fed's large-scale asset purchases. A second consisted of uh, the correspondingly low interest rate targets that the Fed set during the crisis and for some time afterwards. Those are the two most well-known aspects of the Fed's unconventional policies. But the third aspect, which is what we're discussing now, consisted of the change in the Fed's operating system that took place uh, during uh, October 2008, involving a a switch to a so-called floor system from a a type of uh, corridor system. Now, that switch involved two parts. The first consisted of the new policy of paying a positive rather than zero interest rate on reserves introduced uh, again in October 2008, and ultimately paying a rate that made reserves more attractive than other money market uh, assets. And second, uh, going on at the same time, Uh, was the flooding of the system with reserves so that you ended up with an arrangement where banks were sitting on massive quantities of excess reserves, uh, which they held because they found holding them more attractive than they would have in the absence of interest on reserves. That is, uh, they had an incentive to accumulate the reserves the Fed was creating, whereas before the crisis, banks hardly ever held substantial Quantities of excess reserves. So that the, those are the. Uh, that's what uh, unconventional monetary policy consisted of, by and large. Normalization uh, has likewise focused on two of the Fed's normalization strategy. I mean, has likewise focused on two of the three major elements of unconventional policy. As as you're all aware, the Fed has been unwinding slowly its balance sheet uh, and uh, reversing thereby the uh, long, large-scale asset purchases it ga- engaged in, though no one expects it to reverse them completely. We, I would be surprised if the balance sheet ever gets back down to uh, $3 uh, trillion. I doubt it'll do that, whereas before the crisis, as Steve mentioned, we're talking about a balance sheet of about $800 billion. Uh, The second element of normalization is the gradual process of raising the Fed's policy rate uh, ultimately so far to something like a 3% rate, which would include a 2% inflation component, the Fed's target, plus uh, a 1% estimate of the real long-run normal natural rate nowadays. So the third component of normalization is the one you don't hear about because the Fed hasn't talked much about it. It's had some behind-the-scenes discussions, but it has made no official declarations about the operating system and whether normalization will ultimately include going back to a corridor-type system from the present floor-type system. All right. So that's the background. Uh, As... uh, uh, Josh mentioned uh, I've written a, a whole book on this floor system, criticizing it. Thank you. <laughs> Just keep on holding it up there. Uh, so the book is is mostly a, a criticism of the Fed's uh, turn to a floor system, and I obviously can't summarize it in the 10 minutes I have remaining to me, but I would like to emphasize a few points in the book's critique because it, it is an argument, the book is an argument that we should try to go back, not really go back to a corridor system in the sense of going back to exactly what the Fed was doing before the crisis, but go to a a modified and more orthodox corridor system, which would, by the way, allow the Fed to pay interest on reserves, but only at a relatively modest rate, which would constitute the positive above zero lower bound of the the corridor range, and uh, uh, instead of... Zero interest, as we had in the past. But open market operations would once again be the main way in which the Fed uh, regulated its monetary policy target rate. And by the way, I agree with Steve. It would make much more sense, especially now, to uh, uh, go, uh, going forward to have the Fed target an overnight repo rate rather than the federal funds unsecured rate for all kinds of reasons, but partly because if you're going to get back to a floor system from our to a corridor system from our present system that's going to involve some funny behavior of the federal funds rate and it would be better to be targeting a rate that isn't going to be influenced by the transition process itself. But there are other reasons as well for wanting to target a repo rate instead. Uh, So my criticism, a few points. First of all, it consists of two components really. One is backward looking. And did you have a question? Oh, I'm sorry. One is backward-looking and one is forward-looking. The backward-looking criticism consists of a criticism of how the Fed implemented the system, of its arguments for doing so, and what its consequences were during the crisis and recovery. Uh, and let me just say a few words about that, because I think these criticisms uh, are important and they have some bearing on Thinking about the merits of a floor system versus a corridor going forward. The history of the way the Fed turned to a floor system is, I think, quite uh, uh, enlightening. You need to remember the context. Uh, It was October 2008 when the Fed, as part of uh, the emergency legislation at the time, secured permission to start paying interest on reserves three years ahead of the schedule that had originally uh, uh, been been given for it to start uh, paying interest on reserves, of course, The original legislation from 2006 authorizing interest on reserves didn't contemplate it being used for any change in the Fed's operating system. It was just a question of giving banks some compensation for their excess reserve holdings. Nobody at the time imagined that the law would be used to change the way monetary policy was uh, conducted. Uh, But in 2008, that's exactly what the Fed wanted to use interest on reserves for. Its proximate goal was to get banks to hoard reserves. Why? Remember, this is when the economy is really going, is going downhill, or circling the bowl, as it were. And, uh, and uh, we know that in retrospect from every sort of financial indicator. But from April 2008 until October, the Fed's primary concern, or a big one, was inflation. Headline inflation was high during most of those months, because mainly because of oil. And the Fed was very worried that the expansion of reserves that was going on owing to its emergency lending programs might cause it to uh, uh, inadvertently ease monetary policy excessively and miss what was, until October 2008, a 2% federal funds rate target. Now, until then, until the failure of layman's really a month earlier, the Fed had been uh, preventing its emergency lending from... putting downward pressure on the federal funds rate by sterilizing that lending. That is, for every dollar it lent to this or that financial institution, it uh, sold treasuries from its portfolio. So the quantity of reserves did not actually change. But it was running out of short term of treasuries from its portfolio. And at the same time, the scale of its emergency loans after layman's uh, went up tremendously. So, it was looking for other means by which to uh, prevent the emergency lending from lowering the Fed funds rate b- below two percent, and then ultimately below one point five percent. And it took advantage of interest on reserves and getting permission to pay it earlier to get to sequester reserves rather than avoid creating them by sterilizing. It was going to get the banks to just hold on to whatever new reserves get the- came their way. Now in the first criticism is of interest on reserves and the floor system is that it was implemented as a means for monetary tightening, this, and this, I think, was a very, very serious mistake at the time. In retrospect, that is, I don't think tightening or not letting the target rate fall, uh, not, uh, not letting reserves contribute to more bank lending, I don't think that that was a good thing in retrospect. But it gets worse because by November, Fed officials have finally come around to the view that, well, you know, monetary stimulus is probably something we really need. So now we're going to think about deliberately expanding reserves, not just incidentally as a consequence of emergency lending, and so they did, and as ultimately, of course, that they did so in three big rounds, which we know mainly as quantitative easing. Now, here's the thing. They did that, but they kept the floor system in place. They kept interest on reserves in place. True, the rate ultimately fell to just 25 basis points, but other market, money market rates were lower than that. So they kept the system that encouraged banks to hold on to reserves, which originally was adopted to prevent reserve creation from causing any easing of monetary policy and now they're creating reserves on purpose and they expect the same arrangement somehow to be consistent with easing monetary policy. When I testified in Congress about this a couple years ago or maybe it was last, I think it was a couple years ago, I said, well, if insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results, we have to wonder whether the Fed officials at the time were quite right in the head. Uh, now, uh, the thing is that um, they, they had to come up with some rationale for this view that things would change, and they did. They changed the theory. Now they had new theories of how reserve creation would contribute to monetary stimulus. Anyway, that's all backward looking, some of my backward looking criticisms. Let me, uh, and, and by the way, with interest on reserves, you need to have these new theories to explain how money creation is going to, reserve creation is going to stimulate the economy, when you know it's not going to lead to any extra bank lending. Right? And those theories are quite doubtful. Even Bernanke said famously in a quip, well, quantitative easing works in, uh, in practice, but not in theory. I agree with the second part of the f- statement. <laughs> I think that the uh, jury is still out on the first part. All right, forward-looking criticisms very quickly in the four minutes I have remaining. Having a floor system has some uh, benefits that Fed officials have been harping on in their discussions. They only talk about the benefit side. And as Steve alluded to, that consists of the fact that you don't need open market operations. That makes life very simple for the folks at the New York Fed. They don't have to calculate reserve demand and blah, blah, blah. Also, yes, banks have tons of liquidity. So if you think that's necessary, you can see that as a benefit. But after all, with reserve requirements, with the liquidity coverage ratios, etc., banks are perfectly liquid for these other reasons, or would be, you don't need suspenders and a belt. But there are real costs that the Fed officials have ignored. I'll just mention a couple. First, this system kills the unsecured federal funds market. We went from 200 billion a day activity in that market before the floor system to something like 60 or 70 billion a day, maybe 80 nowadays, adjusting for GDP. It's a very, very small uh, a market now. And it is, consists not of true interbank ma- lending, but mainly of arbitrage between the banks and the GSEs. So we have a rate here that doesn't really indicate any proper measure of the cost of funding loans. And that is, and it's more, more far removed from the rates the Fed should care about than ever. That's, that's one problem. Second, because there's no interbank market, you have destroyed, that is, the Fed has destroyed, not only the first resort market for liquidity that used to exist, that's where banks would go when they needed liquidity in, rather than the discount window, uh, but you have destroyed, they have destroyed, An important inspiration for interbank monitoring, and there's a large literature on this. Because it's an unsecured market, banks have an incentive to learn about their counterparties counterparties in dealing with this uh, uh, market, and that limits contagion. The other part, the other main problem with this system that I'll emphasize in my brief remarks is the fact that it does require an enlarged balance sheet. That is, as long as the Fed is determined to keep a floor system, it can only shrink its balance sheet too much because the system requires an ample supply of reserves. Steve is right. It may not require nearly as many as it has now, but it certainly gives them a rationale for maintaining even more than they need. And that's a problem in several respects. One is that it can contribute to collateral shortages because the Fed is gobbling up too many treasury securities, and that has been a problem in the past. A second problem is it crowds out private investment. The more banks lend to the Fed, which is what they're doing when they're holding excess reserves, the less they lend to businesses, consumers, whatever. And the Fed, of course, turns around and does lending of its own, but it favors certain, lend, uh, certain targets, mainly the Treasury and agencies. That's not necessarily the best use of scarce savings. But the biggest problem I see is a fiscal danger. and uh, uh, Charles Plosser has emphasized this as well. The balance sheet size is no longer related to the stance of monetary policy. They're independent variables now. So the balance sheet is sort of a free parameter. If, policy, if the policy stance doesn't dictate how big the Fed's balance sheet should be, what does? Well, one answer is Politics. Politics will rush in to fill that vacuum, and you'll have all kinds of special interests, the Treasury being first in line among them, putting pressure on the Fed to monetize. Monetize this, monetize that. In the old days, the Fed could say, can't do that, going to have inflation, we got a mandate that says we can't uh, inflate. Nowadays, it can't even make that argument, because it's no longer valid. And that is extremely scary. I could go on trying to terrify you, but I know you want to have a nice day and all that, but I think that that may be the biggest danger of all in a system that's loaded with other problems I haven't had time to mention here, but I do mention in my book. Thank you very much. (laughs)
3: OK, in uh, December 2015, the Federal Reserve took an important step towards normalizing its monetary policies by finally lifting short-term interest rates off their zero lower bound. The move was important symbolically because it helped bring to a close an extended period of unconventional policymaking, made necessary by the financial crisis and all that followed. But the move was also important from a practical perspective, too, because it worked to restore to center stage in the Fed's policymaking framework the traditional practice of federal funds rate targeting. As Josh mentioned at the start of today's session, though, the exact operating procedures that the Fed is using to target the funds rate today differ In uh, many ways from the procedures used to achieve the same goal before the financial crisis. Before the crisis, whenever the Fed wanted to change the target for the funds rate, it would have to conduct an open market operation, buying US Treasury securities to inject reserves into the banking system when it wanted to ease policy and conversely selling assets off the balance sheet in order to drain reserves from the system when it wanted to tighten. Since 2015 by contrast, the Fed has instead been targeting the funds rate by manipulating the administered rates that it pays on its own liabilities, chiefly bank reserves. And so in particular, as the FOMC has raised the target for the funds rate in a series of eight steps over the past three years, in each instance, they've started by raising the interest rate paid on reserves putting upward pressure on the funds rate itself. And presumably, if these operating procedures are in place, when the next easing cycle begins, the Fed will allow the federal funds rate to fall back down by first lowering the interest rate on reserves. So my first two points are these. Number one, today, just like before the crisis, the Fed is conducting monetary policy by targeting the funds rate. But two, in order to target the funds rate today, the Fed is using interest on reserves instead of open market operations alone. So what I'd like to do next is to turn the question around and ask, look, if the Fed is just doing today, namely targeting the funds rate, what it did before the financial crisis, but using interest on reserves instead of open market operations. Why keep paying interest on reserves? Why not just go back to the old way of doing things with open market operations alone? Now, one way of answering that question would be to say that in the immediate future, at least, the Federal Reserve really must continue paying interest on reserves. And the reason is that FOMC members have competing goals for interest rate policy on the one hand and the size of the Fed's balance sheet on the other, that in the absence of interest on reserves would be indirect conflict. To see that, remember, again, the Fed is in the midst of a tightening cycle, and today, like always, FOMC members see themselves tightening policy by raising the target for the federal funds rate. But then ask, what would the Fed have to do to raise the target for the funds rate without interest on reserves? conduct open market sales, and that's just it. FONC members want to reduce the size of the balance sheet, but they don't want to engage in uh, an outright open market sales. Instead, they want the balance sheet to be reduced more gradually through a process according to which some of the maturing assets are just allowed to roll off the balance sheet without reinvestment. But that still leaves open the question of what to do in the long run after this process of balance sheet adjustment is finally complete. So let's ask, at that point, what should the Fed do? Continue to use interest on reserves to target the funds rate, or just go back to using open market operations alone? In order to answer that question, we need to think a bit about the benefits and the costs of a policy of paying interest on reserves in the long run. So focusing first on the benefits, the traditional argument to support paying interest on reserves, it's a microeconomic efficiency argument, and it was made most famously by Milton Friedman in his 1959 program for monetary stability, although the argument is originally due, as far as I can tell, to George Tolley, who outlined it in a journal article that was published two years before that. But the argument begins by observing that in a fiat money system, the Fed can basically create an additional dollar in reserves at a resource cost that's, for all practical purposes, equal to zero. Economic efficiency then dictates that any good that can be produced at zero marginal cost ought to have a price in equilibrium equal to zero as well. Now, the only twist that you have to make in order to get the argument to go through involves recognizing that reserves are really most like a durable good. So the relevant notion of their price in this context is uh, like a rental rate or a user cost. It's the opportunity cost that a bank incurs when it decides to hold an additional dollar in reserves instead of lending it out in the interbank markets. But having made that observation, the argument can can conclude by pointing out, as Friedman and Talley did, that one way the Fed can drive the opportunity cost of holding reserves to zero is by paying interest on them at a market rate. So there you've got the benefits of paying interest on reserves, efficiency in the banking system or at least in the market for reserves. What about the costs? Well, the costs, it seems to me, take the form of a set of risks, none of which were really anticipated by Friedman or Tali when they made their arguments to support paying interest on reserves back in the 1950s. And these uh, risks have both economic and political dimensions. That's what George was getting at in the end of his comments in, uh, just a moment ago. So focusing first on the economic risks. The economic risks come about, they're interest rate risks, and they come about not so much because the Fed is paying interest on reserves or even because the Fed is operating with a large balance sheet. They come about instead because of the particular way in practice the Fed has used its ability to pay interest on reserves, together with three rounds of quantitative easing, to open up a maturity mismatch between its short-term floating rate liabilities and its long-term fixed rate assets. This is what Marvin Goodfriend in one of his papers has referred to as a monetary policy carry trade. This carry trade yields significant surpluses so long as short-term interest rates remain low. But those surpluses or profits threaten to turn into losses as the interest rate on the Fed's short-term liabilities threatens to rise above the fixed long-term rates that it's earning on its assets. Now, to be fair, there have been a series of studies. I cite them in the paper I prepared for today's session that assess the quantitative magnitude of this interest rate risk and conclude on the whole that those risks are manageable. I've got no quarrel to make with any of those specific studies. They're all written by leaders in the field, inside and outside the Fed. They all use state-of-the-art methods. But what I would say is, if you go back to the days before the financial crisis, At that point, there were other institutions, including Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, that were also engaged in investment strategies that had the same basic flavor of a carry trade, issuing short-term floating rate liabilities, using the proceeds to accumulate long-term or less liquid fixed rate assets. Presumably, when those strategies were rolled out and maintained, similar stress tests were conducted inside of those institutions using similar methods, reaching similar conclusions that the risks were manageable, and look what happened there. So here, just to be clear, I'm trying to speak in support of the Fed. I understand why FOMC members don't want to engage in outright asset sales. They don't want to risk disrupting financial markets, sending long-term interest rates sharply higher, corporate borrowing rates, mortgage rates included, threatening the ongoing economic expansion. But with that said... If I were on the FOMC, I'd be more than a little bit anxious about the possibility of seeing this interest rate carry trade blow up on me. And that would push me, at least, to want to reduce the size of the balance sheet more quickly and to a smaller, ultimately, new steady state level. And once I got that balance sheet down to size, my inclination would be to say, let's get rid of interest on reserves to avoid having the whole thing start up all over again. Now, there are the economic risks. The political risks, it seemed to me, loom even larger. Twice already, once in 2015 with the highway spending bill and again earlier this year with the Bipartisan Budget Act, Congress has tapped the Federal Reserve surplus, the profits from this, uh, the positive side of this interest rate carry trade, in order to finance ordinary uh, federal expenditures. If I were on the FOMC, I would see this as a game where I had a lot to lose and not much to win. As long as the profits keep rolling in, that just gives members of Congress the opportunity to make it seem like they can increase spending, cut taxes, and not ask the US Treasury to issue more debt. The temptation is just too great. Not even Republicans can resist it. We've seen it twice already. We're going to see it again. On the other hand, when the profits turn to losses, and sooner or later they will because the strategy is a risky one, do you think any member of Congress is going to stand up and explain to the American public that those losses are just the flip side of the gains from a risky investment strategy that the Federal Reserve conducted that allowed us for a period of time to enjoy, as American taxpayers, higher government spending and low taxes? Of course not. At that point, blame is going to shift squarely to the Fed, threatening the institution's ability to conduct monetary policy effectively and maybe even threatening the independence of the institution. So again, if I were on the FOMC, This would push me towards wanting to wind the balance sheet down more quickly, get rid of interest on reserves, shut down the shenanigans, call the game to a halt. So where does all of this leave us? We're not on the FOMC. We see benefits and costs. What do we recommend? Well, fortunately, we don't have to decide because there is, in fact, a better way. About 10 years after the Program for Monetary Stability, Milton Friedman wrote another paper called The Optimum Quantity of Money. And in it, he outlined a different strategy for achieving the same efficiency condition in the market for reserves that you get from paying interest on reserves. The basic idea is to ask the Fed to steadily contract the money stock in order to generate a sustained price deflation that drives nominal interest rates economy-wide to zero and eliminates the opportunity cost not only of holding reserves, but holding all monetary assets. So the plan works even better than interest on reserves. Now, I realize that all central bankers, and most monetary economists too, see zero nominal interest rates and deflation as bad things, not good things. They're associating them in their mind with the Keynesian liquidity trap, not Friedman's rule for the optimum quantity of money. And I understand that too. But I would also argue in response that we don't have to go all the way to the Friedman rule in order to enjoy the benefits that it promises to deliver. All we have to do is to ask the Federal Reserve to generate slow but steady growth in the money supply to stabilize inflation around a low average rate and thereby stabilize interest rates at low levels as well. That would not only improve efficiency in the entire monetary system, but going back to what Peter said, uh, Peter Gettler, in his opening remarks, that strategy – committing the Fed to low and stable inflation and nominal interest rates would also restore the monetary backdrop of stability that would allow the free market to do what it and only it does best, namely allow for robust growths in job opportunities and income for all Americans. So that would be my preferred solution, work the balance sheet down as quickly as possible a size that more closely resembles what prevailed before the financial crisis, jettison interest on reserves, and ask the Fed to recommit itself to keeping inflation low and stable. Thanks.
0: So we're gonna move into a, a Q&A. Um, please wait to be called on. There's gonna be a microphone going around, going around. And so in order that everyone in the room and our online audience can hear the question, please wait until you get the microphone. And when you do, announce your name and affiliation. And you know the reporter's tip I always give people is that when you ask a really concise question, you get, a really, you get an answer to your question. When you give a really long speech, the person can avoid the tricky part of your question by latching on to something you gave in the really long preamble. So ask really concise questions. Everybody gets more out of it. Um, we have one here in the middle of the room, Athanasios.
4: Hi, uh, Athanasius Orfanidis, MIT. A a question for uh, all three members of the panel. As I see, the suggestion is to uh, get rid of the uh, interest and excess reserves and go back to the uh, pre-2007 zero interest rates uh, being paid. But, you know, I was actually inside the Fed in 2006, 2007 when we started thinking about that. And my recollection is that the whole point of trying to come up with an instrument was to have the feasibility of uh, a true corridor system similar to the corridor systems that so many other central banks uh, uh, are using to implement monetary policy. And since so many other central banks are continuing to do that, uh, I wonder if you could comment on uh, on whether you're advising all central banks in the world to get rid of corridor systems or explain what's special about the United States that uh, makes your recommendation apply to the United States, but not to any other country.
2: If, if I may start, uh, I'm going to start by exempting myself from your criticism, <laughs> because I uh, quite explicitly uh, argue in my book and, and stated in my talk that uh, a corridor system of the sort I favored. Uh, can involve paying interest on reserves. That is, I, I favor our moving not to what we had with zero interest, but to moving toward an orthodox corridor system of the sort many other central banks use. So there's you can pay interest on reserves without being in a floor system. It's a matter of Uh, of the rate of interest on reserves and whether it is high enough uh, or not to encourage banks to accumulate all the reserves that come their way. Uh, Normally in a corridor system, the interest rate on reserves is not so attractive as to make banks want to pile up reserves. Uh, A corridor system can occasionally uh, be one where the corridor is also set at zero, but that would depend on special circumstances. I would like to add here, or with, in connection with Peter's remarks on the Friedman rule, that um, there's a very good paper by Canaveri and several other co- co-authors that argues that if you if you take the non-neutrality of other taxes into account. Probably the right interest rate, now this is at the time when the paper was written a couple of, year, few, couple of years ago, that the optimal interest rate on reserves consistent with the Friedman Rule adjusted for uh, other distorting, uh, distortions uh, would be something like uh, minus, minus 40 basis points. Uh, uh, so, in other words, the Friedman Rule doesn't necessarily call for an interest rate on reserves when you take distortions into account, that's sufficient to sustain a floor system. It, it could be a, a much more in, modest interest rate that that we're talking about uh, uh, would would be both consistent with the Friedman rule, modified Friedman rule, and with a corridor rather than a floor system.
1: So I guess I'm 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 with you i guess you know so that it's uh seems to me that uh i i, so I, I don't i don't really see the costs of, of uh just allowing payment of interest on reserves and you know like you like you say the you know these corridor systems seem to seem to work well in, in in other countries and you know why shouldn't we do it too i guess peter's argument seems to be Maybe there's something special going on going on here. So I mean, maybe I have some sympathy with that. So that there's there's uh, well yeah, yes and no. So, so there's, others in the in the Fed there's there's a lot of uh, you know central bankers never like to admit an error and and I think there there's uh, uh uh general general impression that quantitative easing works there's a temptation to use it if we you know we have another recession they 'll be right back at large scale asset purchases i think uh and given that temptation then you know there is then the there there's temptation on the part of the of the fiscal authority to to uh to to start weighing in on what what kind of assets should be purchased purchased so so I guess Peter's argument would be that the paying paying zero interest on reserves is, is a commitment Safe. device, and it's uh, and there's some safety in that. But
3: uh, uh, so, or the uh, another way of, of saying it, when I started thinking about interest on reserves, my inclination was to say that that sounds great, the Friedman rule and the efficiency that it promises to deliver, and you have a corridor or a floor system, and theory shows that it works, but To me, the problem is the politics that surround the particular way that interest rate on reserves has been used here in the United States. And then someone will say, Oh, why are you so worried about this? The reason is that we see this happening again and again. With Fannie and Freddie, it was this off budget, uh, off balance sheet, off budget promise to guarantee the the loans on the, the GSE's debt. And look at the, at the state level, you have the, the public employees pension crisis again. What the governments were doing were issuing liabilities, but not being honest about that. And when you see those same dynamics opening up and getting the Fed involved too, that, that, that's really my source of concern, the way that the politics interact with the economics.
2: If I could add just one quick note. All the time when the Fed was arguing for interest on reserves prior to 2008, and it made many attempts to get Congress to approve that authority to pay interest on reserves until it finally succeeded in the 2006 Act, first authorizing it to pay interest, Uh, it was thinking exclusively of a corridor system There was no thought of a switch to a floor system. Indeed, I dare say that if anyone had argued before Congress that they were thinking of using this to implement a radical change in the Fed's operating procedures, they would have have wrecked their chances to get the permission in the first place. But it's very clear from the testimony of various Federal Reserve officials that they were not contemplating abandoning conventional uh, corridor-type Uh, operations uh, based on uh, uh, open market uh, purchases and sales. They did a great switcheroo when they got permission to implement interest on reserves three years ahead of the original schedule. Uh, And, of course, they didn't have Congress's permission specifically to do that. They just did it. And they broke the law, by the way, (laughs) because the law in both the 2000. six act and in the emergency 2008 act says the interest rate on reserves should be set at a level not to exceed the general level of short-term interest rates and no way can you measure the the relationship between the fed's actual interest rate on reserves since 2008 compared relative to other any reasonable other short-term interest rate without concluding that the fed is in violation has been consistently in violation until recently at least of the statute. Uh, uh,
0: let's right here on the side.
5: Uh, my name is Chris Angliss, I'm a CPA. I teach a Federal Reserve class for Fairfax County Adult Education. Um, as a CPA, I, I kind of focused on that issue where you mentioned that the Federal Reserve decided not to decrease their balance sheet, but uh, to increase interest rates. And I was thinking about the ordering of that. It seemed that the American taxpayer is paying tax money to pay interest on all this government debt that's held by the Federal Reserve. And that interest income then just funnels through to the banks to give them interest on their excess reserves. So the banks are profiting. I looked at the balance sheet of the the income statements of the Federal Reserve. It's tens of billions of dollars every year of taxpayer money that's going to the profits of the banks. Um, Since the Federal Reserve is controlled by the banks, um, maybe they're just trying to line their own pockets based on the, just follow the money. Um, so I just wanted some reaction to you and let me know if maybe that's the reason behind all this. Um, just to increase their profits with the banks, give them a return on investment without any risk. Pretty sweet.
0: It's a great question. I mean, when Janet Yellen was in Congress and had to defend interest on excess reserves, that was actually the bipartisan criticism that she got, was that it was lining pockets. What's the right response to that?
2: Well, uh, twofold response. First of all, of course, uh, uh, banks are glad to have this other alternative for uh, earning revenue. And uh, ipso facto, the fact that uh, some banks, uh, mainly foreign bank branches and uh, very large New York banks, have have been accumulating reserves to uh, and even borrowing them to take advantage of the interest on reserves means that they like it, right? It's an it's an option they didn't have before, so to that extent, there may be something to this uh, uh, public choice type of concern. However, unfortunately, it's not the case that uh, it, it isn't a simple matter of the banks profiting by the full amount of the interest on reserves uh, or of the public losing that much, because we have to remember that the. The fact that the banks accumulate all these reserves in turn is what allows the Fed to finance a much larger balance sheet. So it is earning more interest because of, of the demand for reserves being greater. And it is paying much of that, all of that interest over to the banks. Uh, so uh, its earnings go up, at least setting in duration risk effects on, on this, to the side. Its earnings go up and its payments, its outpayments go up. The real cost of interest on reserves to the public fiscal cost consists of the difference between the interest that would be paid, the zero interest that would be paid on banks' required reserve holdings and the positive interest that is now paid on on those required holdings, which is a much
0: smaller fiscal cost. I think we have time for just one more quick question. Uh, Let's take Vincent there and back.
1: A different uh, drafting question. In a floor system, the IOER sets the floor on the federal funds rate. The IOER is an administered rate set by the Board of Governors. The funds rate target is set by the FOMC. Do you ever envision a time in which the board could slow or speed up the FOMC? Second question, and is right now there's a contested bank charter for the narrow bank with the business model of essentially segregating deposit accounts, What is that a good allocation of resources, and what would it do to the Fed's control of its own balance sheet?
3: Yeah, I actually mentioned both of those things um, in in my paper. Um, We don't yet know even the argument why that narrow bank was not allowed to proceed, but it would have solved the problem that the problem that the Fed solved instead with overnight reverse repurchase agreements. If the problem was that the Fed funds rate was trading below, the interest rate on reserves because of GSEs and other market participants who were not entitled to earn interest on reserves, well, just allow a bank to step in and, and do the arbitrage instead. To me, that seems like a simpler and more efficient approach. It avoids layering on a whole another, um, you know, Federal Reserve program. Um, and so what's troubling is, um, we don't even know what the arguments were that were used to shut that down.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was like the, yeah, the the people who set up the narrow bank were, you know, they observed that there was this this arbitrage opportunity that they could uh, they could uh, borrow at the reverse repo rate and, and make a profit holding holding uh, reserves. Now, unfortunately for them, I mean, the profit opportunities essentially gone away. <laughs> but, uh, you yeah, know, that's, that's, that's what that was about.
0: Well, so before we wrap up, let me ask a really quick question that kind of ties this panel into one of the panels that we're going to hear from later today. So kind of the reason we're having this discussion is that for most of the past 10 years, the Fed kind of botched it, miss, missed its goals. And, and kind of the, one of the, the theory outlined here is that part of the reason the Fed missed its goals is because it botched the mechanics of how to operate its policies. Now, the panels we're going to hear from later today are going to argue that the Fed had, the reason the Fed missed its goals is because it had set the wrong goals. It should have had a policy rule. It should have had a more uh, a more uh, aggressive nominal target. And if they had just set better goals, they could have hit those. And so I'm curious what you guys think is, is correct. Did the Fed, um, could the Fed have fixed this by having the right goals, or had they so botched the mechanics that they weren't going to hit their goal no matter what it was?
3: Well, I I would put it slightly differently. I I would think of it in terms of sort of in the fog of war, it's not possible to get everything right. No one anticipated or very few people anticipated the crisis. And as the crisis was developing week by week, it would be unreasonable to think that the Fed would have gotten everything right. That said, now that we have the chance at conferences like this one and Brookings has done something similar, and I would imagine similar committees are even being formed within the Fed, survey what what worked and what didn't and come up with rules that we think will work better the next time around. Then we'll have them in place the next time around.
2: My response, Josh, would be that... Uh... It's possible for the Fed to have the wrong goals and to miss them uh, because it's not doing the right thing, and I believe that that's in fact uh, much of, uh, uh, much the case for uh, a large segment of the post uh, uh, and pre-crisis period. Uh, I've written about this, uh, and I think Cla- Claudio and I and, and others, agree, uh, some others in this room, agree that. Uh, an absolute commitment to a fixed inflation rate target is not the ultimately the best goal for monetary policy. So, that that's one part of it. Uh, but it's also true that uh, since January 2012, when the Fed first explicitly uh, uh, assigned itself a a specific two percent target, uh, since then uh, until recently, the Fed consistently undershot uh, that target. Something is wrong with the monetary system that can't generate enough inflation, a fiat monetary system. Uh, And of course, the operating uh, uh, mechanism has always got to be a suspect in that case. But uh, the fact of the matter is that there was a 2% target. There was a Fed with unlimited powers of fiat money creation and uh, interest rate discretionary policies, and it just couldn't hit it. Uh, now, I think the floor system has something to do with it. It would be easier to hit a 2% target if creating reserves resulted in uh, banks turning around and lending them and expanding monetary aggregates than uh, is the case when none of that happens. I guess I'm that much of an old-fashioned monetarist. I believe that. So I think, that, uh, I think the answer is the goals are wrong. And the mechanism is wrong, uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure there's something right about the Fed, but uh, I'll, have <laughs> to, I'll have to think about it.
1: <laughs> so, I, I think if you, if you, for me, if you, if you look at the yeah. Fed's statement on on long-run goals, to me that looks fine. So it says two percent inflation target, and then. Uh, the second part of the dual mandate, which they have to address, they say, "Well, you know, we don't want to we don't want to choose an explicit target like a target for the unemployment rate or something that's somewhat fraught." They give good reasons for it, so that part you know, we're going to care about this other part of the mandate, but you know, we're not going to be entirely explicit about what we're what we're doing about it. So that's, that seems okay for me it's you know the uh part of the problem is how you get from the how you get from the goals to the 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 stated goals to uh, the implementation so so the uh some cases we've seen uh central banks so uh, be- people think they seem to think well a uh, central bank should be able to produce inflation if it wants to well we observe the uh Bank of Japan trying to create more inflation and, and and uh throwing everything at it. Uh uh QE, negative nominal interest rates, forward guidance, whatever, you know, so uh, without, without success. Uh some to me, some of these things look pretty simple you know so it's, it's, uh, it seems to me clear that if uh, if uh, central bank holds nominal interest rates at a low level for a long time that produces low inflation that 's just Irving Fisher uh, so th- th- you know, it doesn 't surprise me at all that if you, you go through this long period post post crisis with low nominal, low nominal interest rates you 're going to be undershooting your your inflation target so uh, uh, so, so it's to me, it's just a, a problems in, in uh, policy, rules, and, and implementation.
0: Well, I think that wraps us up here. Let's give a round of applause for our panel.